The following is a recording from ACF Church in Eagle River, Alaska. If you would like to join us on a Sunday morning, we would love to have you be our guest. Service times are 9 and 11 a.m. We hope you'd consider partnering in the work God is doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you would like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can safely give by texting a donation amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm glad to see you. My name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in a series called Anchored Soul. Last week was amazing. Uh, Can we just give it up for all the volunteers that served last weekend? Can we? So awesome. We just appreciate you so much for being involved. None, none of what we do happens without our volunteers and the people who just give themselves to the ministry here. And so thanks so much for just being a part of this together. Uh, I just really sense that there's a, a movement happening in our city and in our church, and I'm really excited about that. And so Easter weekend was just a crazy, awesome weekend. We, we saw a ton of baptisms. I, I just really believe that people heard the gospel, both in our church and all over our city, which is just exciting to celebrate. Um, next week, I want to talk to you guys real quick. I want to invite you back um, for next Sunday. I don't know if you are on sort of a twice a month church rotation. Sometimes people go two or three times a month, but make sure next week is one of your times. Uh, we're talking about this, this difficult topic in, uh, that the church oftentimes overlooks, and it's the topic of depression. And I don't know if you guys know this, but this month is the highest rate of suicides in Alaska. Uh, which, which oftentimes doesn't make much sense. It's starting to get nice out. It's starting to, to feel like spring. And so we go, man, shouldn't everybody be happy? But this is a really difficult time of year uh, for a lot of people. And it's a dark state. Anybody get depressed in the winter a little bit? I mean, it's, it's a dark place. And so we're going to open up this conversation, share some stories. And in a room this size, in a church our size, there are people who are dealing, uh, I know there's people dealing with depression. And, uh, and everyone here has probably been impacted by this in one way or another. And so we're just going to talk about what it feels like to, to interact with God in the valleys. Where is God in the dark points of our lives? And so I want to invite you back for that. Um, but this week, we are continuing on in Anchored Soul. And, and uh, I want you to open up to Hebrews chapter 6 for a launching passage. This, you're going to hear this passage a few times throughout this series uh, as, we, as we walk through this. But it's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. And it'll be on the screen behind me. You can follow along there as well. It says this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we talked about last week, Jesus being our forerunner, this idea, this nautical term of this, these ships would want to come into port and there would be all kinds of perils in the harbor, these undercurrents and rocks they wouldn't know how to navigate. 
And so there would be this small ship called the Forerunner, this pilot vessel that would come up next to the large ship. The large ship would place its anchor in the hull of the small ship. The small ship would navigate all of the dangerous waters, place the anchor safely on the shore, and winch the large ship safely home. And so this is our story. This is what we celebrate on Easter is that Jesus made a way for us that we could not get in uh, to shore safely. We couldn't do it on our own. Jesus doesn't just say, here's how you get saved. I, uh, good luck. I hope you can get your act together. I hope you can make it. He literally comes to earth, comes and puts on the skin of humanity, ends up dying in our place, and then is resurrected so that we can be resurrected and into, into new life. And so that's what we're celebrating. That's where we're launching today. And our goal as a church Our goal as a community is to find the peace that's available in a life that trusts in the sufficient work of Christ on the cross. I mean, there's so much peace knowing that that the work is done, that he does it all. It wasn't on you and it's not on you to save yourself. So who in the room thinks that you're a good navigator? Who's a good navigator? Uh, Okay, a few of you. Awesome. I hope we're not lost someday as a a wandering community (laughs) because... We've got like six of you. So that's good. I can, I can relate. I am not a good navigator. My wife is the navigator in our family. And, uh, and I just kind of, I kind of get by. I'll get to where I'm going, but we might burn a couple extra gallons getting there. I take the scenic route to most places I go. Um, and so I'm not the best navigator. I, I get by, but I, I, I hunt. And so when you hunt, you know, you need to be able to get around in the woods. And does anybody know how to use a, an actual compass? Does anybody actually use, okay, a few of you, and I know in our church there's so many like outdoors people and, and military people that for some of you, you love navigating. Some of you just get a kick out of this. Like a vacation for you would be to be stripped down naked and dropped in the woods somewhere with nothing but a compass and a box of matches. You know, this sounds like fun to you and it sounds like torture to me, but some of you love, you love navigating, you love just getting around and, and finding your way through through the woods. And for me, I, I need help and so I've I've got this thing. Anybody know what this is? So this is my uh, this is my GPS uh, global positioning system for the layman. If you didn't know what that meant, it's my GPS, and I love this thing. My dad gave this to me, like pretty much every other piece of hunting equipment I have, I've inherited from my dad. And so uh, this is my Garmin GPS, and I love this thing. I think about the technology in this; it's just crazy. I mean, it speaks to space and tells you within a few feet of where you are on planet Earth, which is which is wild to me, the the technology that's packed into this little device, and it's so trustworthy. And so I'll get out into the woods, and I'll pull this thing out, and it's cool. You can set your location, and you can set your destination, and and you can say, get me to there, and you, you hit the button, and it'll make a path for you and tell you how to get to where you're going. But I don't know if you've dealt with this with a GPS, but I, every time I use it, I start walking through the woods, and about 15 minutes into the walk, I start questioning this thing. I start having my doubts about it, and I start having a conversation with the GPS, like, I don't know if I can trust you, because things don't look quite right. You know, I've been here before, this mountain looks different, this path looks different, I don't, I don't know, and I start, I start wondering, am I really going the right way? And I start getting concerned, because as I mentioned, I'm not a great navigator, and so I, I'm, I get concerned, I'm in the woods, and I don't, I want to get out safely, and, and I'm navigating through the woods, and then what always happens is, is I'll run across a path or a trail. And if you've ever done this, you're walking towards your heading and then you hit a path and you think, 
Well, that seems like a good way. That seems like maybe an easier way. Why wouldn't I just take the path? But if you've ever navigated through the woods, you know that paths are deceiving, right? Uh, You can't just follow roads because roads could take you many, many miles in the wrong direction. And I have done this. And so you have to stay on your heading. You have to trust your equipment. You have to trust that you are going where you need to go. And so the question that I want to unpack today and wrestle with today is this. How will we follow? the Savior and not the system? How will we follow the Savior and not the system? And, and this is a really important thing to wrestle with, I think, for the church, because there is a tendency to follow the system of Christianity, to follow the processes and the rules and all of the trappings of what it looks like to be a Jesus follower and to have never truly followed Christ himself and learned what it means to set him as our true north, him as our, as our waypoint, and to make our way straight to him. We haven't learned how to do that. And, and maybe some of you in the room are, are non-Christians. Maybe you've not been convinced that, uh, that Jesus is real or that he really exists. And maybe, maybe you've experienced some issues with the church and with Christians and you've, you've seen this tension between who God is and who the church is. And you've, you've wrestled with that dichotomy of like, well, if, if God looks like that, then I don't know if I want to have anything to do with that God. And you've heard people say that too. So we're going to wrestle with both sides of that today. And so let's pray together and then get into this text. Jesus, we need you to speak to us today. We're grateful for this time together that we have the freedom to gather as a church in your name. That we can open up your word. That we have it readily available. And we can read it and be changed by it. God, we ask for your spirit to speak to us, to move in our hearts. God, we ask that we wouldn't waste this time. Um, God, and, and that we would, you would have our full attention. God, we know that this week will bring all kinds of uh, challenges and difficulties. And so, Father, would you ground us in Jesus today? We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. So you might have gotten an insert on the way into church today. You can follow the, the notes on there, or you can open up our app online, or you can follow on the screen behind me. But we're going to be skipping ahead to Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to talk about this guy, Melchizedek. I promised I would mention him this week. And, and don't let me lose you with the word Melchizedek. I know all of you are like, that, that feels like school already. But just, just stay with me, because I think there's some really profound truth here um, in this passage so the author of the book of Hebrews is a little bit debated, but many people believe it was Paul. And Paul is creating sort of this word picture for us in, in Hebrews chapter 7. He's, he's bringing out this character. And oftentimes there are characters in Scripture that help us understand really important things about God. They're, they're not in there haphazardly. They're in there for a reason. And so we're going to read about this historical figure, Melchizedek, and why he was important. And why it was important for us to understand who he is. And so this is cool stuff. Hebrews chapter 7, 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is the king of peace. And so we have this man, Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. And he is also the king of this place called Salem, which means 
peace. And so king of righteousness, king of peace is who Abraham runs into. And, and we don't know that much about this guy. There's only a few references about him in scripture, but we know he's extremely important. And he's referring back to what happened in, in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham's nephew Lot is abducted and, and his family as well by these kings. And so Abraham gathers 318 of his servants together to go rescue Lot and his family. And he slaughters these kings. And he comes back exhausted from war, exhausted from battle, and he runs into Mel. And so him and Mel have this connection. He meets Mel, and Mel's first response to Abraham is to bless him. And so in this, this idea of blessing in Genesis would have been to offer bread and to offer wine. So Abraham comes back from war. He meets Mel. Mel gives him a blessing of bread and wine. And bread was this symbol of strength. And, and wine was a symbol of life. And so Abraham, exhausted from battle, meets Mel. Mel gives him bread and wine, strength and life. Sound familiar yet? Sounds a little familiar. So we'll get there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to all come together. Verse 3 says this. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. And so this guy Melchizedek is a priest, and there's something really important happening here because we don't have any lineage on him. We have no history of where he came from, where he went afterwards. He just sort of shows up and disappears. And, and what's interesting, he's con- drawing this contrast between this priesthood that this guy is a part of and the Levitical priests of the day. Because the Levites, the, the Levitical priests, were priests by virtue of their heritage, By virtue of their history, they were born into the right family at the right time. And scripture doesn't give us any limitations on on Melchizedek's priesthood. He wasn't part of the right family. It had no beginning or end in his life. And these Levitical priests, they would have been sort of like modern day self-help therapists. You know, they're like Dr. Phil. And and so the, the Levitical priests were sort of like, you would have an issue in your life. You would be, you know, overcome with anger or fear, or, or lust, or uh, you'd have some kind of issue in your life, and you'd be like, listen, I know that I'm messed up. I know that I'm a sinner. And so you would go to Dr. Phil, you'd go to the Levitical priest, and you'd say, hey, here's, here's my issue. Here's my problem. Let me confess this problem to you. And so then what the priest would do is he would compare your life to the law. He would set your life next to him. He would show you how the law and your life connect and how you actually don't match up to all the requirements of the law. And you'd be like, yep, I know it. I'm screwed up. I get that. And so then he'd say, well, here's how you act less screwed up. You know, here's how you fix it. Here's what you should do differently. Here's how you try to get your life together. And then he would kill something for your screw up. And so this was the whole process of going to Levitical priests. And, and the thing is, Melchizedek hits the scene. He, he's, he's appointed a priest without any kind of history. And he's, he's part of this new priesthood. And, and it's really important that we get this. Verse 4 says this. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. So Abraham, the patriarch, runs into Mel. And something crazy happens. He tithes the spoils to Melchizedek. Which you're thinking, well, maybe that seems right. He's a priest, isn't he? But no, this is crazy because Abraham is at the top of the totem pole. He is the patriarch of this Levitical priesthood. And, and as the patriarch, you wouldn't have received, wouldn't have been given, giving a, a tithe. You would receive the tithe. And so this is crazy. So he's saying something about this guy Melchizedek 
that is, that is wild. He's saying he is greater than me in some way or another. And so if this hasn't clicked for you yet, Melchizedek here is representing Christ. He's representing Jesus. And some people even believe that he was a pre-incarnate Jesus. That this was Christ before he ever hit the scene as a human being in his birth. And, and so Abraham then is us. And so we've got Melchizedek representing Jesus and then us represented by Abraham. So let's skip ahead a bit to verse 14. It says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So, so the Levites were from the tribe of Levi. And so that's, and then there's Jesus who was called the Lion of Judah. You ever heard Jesus called the Lion of Judah? Was from the tribe of Judah. And he's saying, listen, there's no line of priests from this tribe. How can this be? And then in, in verse 15, it says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a high priest, a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And so, here to stick with me, I know it's getting a little deep in here, but here, here's the deal. We've got this guy, Melchizedek, that, that hits the scene and he's pointing to someone greater. He is a forerunner. He's a forerunner. This word forerunner is, is pointed to something greater. He's a forerunner for Jesus, pointing to this greater priest who would come someday. And it's a beautiful thing as he interacts with Abraham, giving him bread and wine that we see in the Passover and in the Last Supper. We see this idea of bread and wine, strength and life being given by Jesus. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. And it shows me as I, as I read the Bible, you're going to see a lot of things like this that you're like, I think God was in that. I think God kind of had a whole plan all figured out. I don't think he's flying by the seat of his pants, you know. I think God had this whole plan to reveal himself to humanity step by step by step. So Jesus is from this line of Melchizedek. He's not from the right family or from the right background. He's got this indestructible life and is given to us as this new high priest, this new way of dealing with things. And it says the former way of dealing with sin is weak. It's even useless, it says here. It's like, it's sort of like watching Dr. Phil and hoping to get your life saved, you know? Like, I want salvation, so I'm going to watch daytime television. I'm going to try to get myself together. I'm going to confess my sins and hope that I can, I can get saved. And he's like, hey, it's kind of useless. It never, it was never intended to save you. Uh, people talk about the law like a mirror. It was only, rep- it was only intended to show you who you are. And to show you, here is the law. Here is what Christ would be. Perfection. And then here you are. And you will never make, you will never be good enough to, to match up to the law. And in verse 19 it says, for the law made nothing perfect. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harp on this all the time. We can't stop talking about this. For the law made nothing perfect. You guys hear that today? For the law made nothing perfect. And this would have been so important for these Hebrew people to hear as they would have been persecuted and struggling just like 64 years after the death of Jesus, being persecuted for what they believed. They would have had all kinds of pressure to go back to the old religious system that they would have had, to go back to trusting in their works 
and their deeds. So a question for you. Who has been married more than two years? That's a lot of hands, right? More than two years. Who's been married more than five years? Okay, a lot of you. Awesome. Who's been married more than 10 years? We got some. Okay, it's thinning out a little bit. How about 15 years? All right, we're getting there. How about 20 years? Awesome, awesome. Who's been married more than 25 years? Sweet, we've got, we've got some, some powerful marriages. How, who's been married more than 30 years? Yes, okay, I'm going to stop there because you're like, don't, don't make me do it, Brian. It's just making me look old. I love that. No, it's, it's awesome. We've got, we've got all different age uh, ranges in this room and people have been married all kinds of different lengths. And you guys know, I love seeing an older couple that is just so in love. Don't you guys love that? You see older couples walking around holding hands and you just think, I just want that for myself, you know, someday to be holding hands and just, just still deeply in love. And I, I, uh, I buy and sell things on Craigslist sometimes. And, and a, a few, uh, I guess it was a couple months ago, this guy came to the house to, to buy something from me and we get to talking and he starts sharing about his life a little bit and I'm kind of like, I'm just trying to work a deal here, dude. And he's, he's, he's dumping his life out before me and, and it, it, it comes to, it comes clear that he's had a divorce recently and he starts talking about his marriage and just laying it all out there. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm just an approachable person, but he just starts laying his life out there and he started talking about how towards the end of their marriage, it was just like, you know, they were just barely living together. He said he had actually moved into the garage and set up his bed in the garage. And they were just, they were in the same house. And all the neighbors would have probably looked at them and seen them coming in and out of the front door of that house and thought that things were just fine. But over the years, they had grown slowly apart. And it, it just broke my heart as he was talking about this because I'm like, man, I just, I know that it wasn't supposed to be that way, you know? Like, there's just so much pain. I could see it in his eyes that this was a difficult season. And he's, you know, he's trying to say, oh, it's better this way. You know, oh, it's better this way. But the man's like welling up with tears. And I know there's just so much hurt and brokenness in his life. And I think about this for the life of a believer. There is this journey that we go on. And some of you have only been following Jesus for a very short time. Some of you aren't following Jesus at all. And that others of you have been Christians, per se, for, for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. And there, there's this big journey that we go on. So here's the thing. I think there's this slow transition that happens where we lose the joy of our first love. We lose what it feels like to, to taste grace, to know that, that Christ has saved us from so much. And we give in to just living by the trappings of Christianity. You know, we go in and out of the front door. Everybody looks at your life. They might say, hey, that person's got it together. Hey, they're going to church. They're doing the right things. But if you would look inside of the chambers of your heart, you and God would be living in different ends of the house. You know, I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, we're together, but we're not really together. There's no connection anymore. There's no passion anymore. There's no real commitment anymore. I have given in to the trappings of Christianity. And see, Melchizedek is pointing to this, this priesthood, this better way of living, that Jesus is the only way. That through him, we can experience true life and experience this life for what it's supposed to be. Hebrews calls Jesus a better hope through which we draw near to God. A better hope. 
Like, I don't know what you've been doing to save yourself. I don't know if you're a person that trusts in all of your good works and all of your good deeds and all of the things that you've done, but it says Jesus is a better hope through which we draw near to God. And if you're, if you're from the Bible Belt, anybody from the Bible Belt from down south? Yeah, we got some of those people. Don't you know, like, when you're in the Bible Belt, what do you do on Sunday? You go to church, right? It's just what you do. It's part of the culture. Uh, my wife Amanda went to the University of Alabama, and she was talking about how that was part of the culture. It's just like everything's empty except for the churches on Sunday morning. You just go to church. It's what you do, which you might see as progress. You might be like, Brian, how could you criticize that? Isn't that a good thing? But what I believe almost happens is there's sort of this inoculation process where you kind of get just enough Jesus to feel like you're good, but not enough to truly save you, you know? Not enough to truly change your life. You've been around Jesus. You've been around his people. You go to church. You have just enough to feel like you're safe, but not enough to truly experience salvation. And to me, that's scary. To me, that's maybe worse than a life of just outright rebellion towards God. Because at least if you're here today and you're like, yeah, Brian, I don't believe in God. I want nothing to do with him. That's a good starting point. I mean, we can start there. We can have a conversation from there. We can be honest with each other. But if you're here today and you're like, no, I'm good, Brian. I go to church. I do all of the right requirements, the religious requirements of Christianity. Don't you see I'm good when you're there, you, you're just, it's like you've been just given enough to feel okay, but not enough to truly experience life. And that's scary to me. That, that's scary to me. Or maybe, maybe for, you're from a religious kind of churchy background, and you've been given all of these other things your whole life. This has been part of the problem, is you've been told, it's Jesus and these things. This is how you get saved, is it's Jesus and go to church, read your Bible, take a purity pledge, and listen to Jesus Freak, right? Anybody? Jesus Freak? Total win. If you don't know that song, go download it. DC Talk. It's the best, best Christian song ever. So, Jesus Freak. I, I just, it was all part, it's like all my buddies in, in high school, we just listen to Jesus Freak, you go to church, you read your Bible. It's, this is what you do if you're a Christian. And so you've been given this whole list of things and you're like, yep, got it, got it, got it, and I'm good. And so, here's the thing. Jesus is a better way. Only through Jesus will you experience peace. Only through Jesus will you experience true life. And, and this conversation has to keep coming up because there is a slow deterioration of a relationship that can happen. You guys who have been married 30, 40 years, you didn't get there by ignoring your relationship. You didn't get there by just thinking everything's good to go. You got there by working on it. You got there by having the tough fights, by disagreeing and arguing and, and doing it well. You got there through the commitment of the relationship, through the covenant that you made with each other. And this is the thing. I want a whole church of people who one day will look back at a long life, well lived in a committed relationship with Jesus. Not just a life of religious behavior, not a life of like, well, what did you do? I went to church. I tithed. I did all the Christiany things. I listened to Jesus, freak. I am. I'm good. I nailed it. You know. I don't. I don't want a church of people that are that way. And I, I definitely don't want to be a community of people who feel safe because we do these things. I want to feel safe because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. That's what Easter is all about. Is that He did it all. He is your forerunner. You couldn't get in there safely on your own if you wanted to. You couldn't save yourself if you wanted to. Jesus did all the work. So it begs the question then, how do we learn to follow 
Jesus? What does it look like? Because these things aren't bad. Obviously, I want you in church. I want us to gather together. I want us to participate in the work of God. Is there anything wrong with those things? Of course not. How about following each other? Following leaders in the church? No, that's a really good thing. But in the end, we want to follow Jesus. And for me, this is scary because I know that people are watching me as a pastor. And I look and I'm like, okay, so I, I'm supposed to lead. I want to lead well. But I know that even, even my life is a, is a broken example of Jesus. I mean, if you want to be offended, just spend five minutes in my head. You'd be like, get that guy off the stage. What is he doing up there? I'm serious. You guys, <laughs> I got to tell you this story. So I've got a little boy, Grayson, and he's three years old. And we were out on a walk with some friends the other day. We like to go walk on walks around the neighborhood. And, and uh, we were out in a field, and there's these big, these big puddles, you know, because it's all melting out right now. And, and on the top of the puddle is this little layer of ice. And so my, my little boy Grayson, he's awesome. He's always running around like a superhero, and he's got new bog boots, and they're like four sizes too big because we're too cheap to buy them, you know, like every time he gets bigger. So they're, four t- so they're just flopping around on his feet, but he loves them. And, and like Superman's got a cape, he's got bogs. He just, this is where he gets his superpowers, you know. And so we're walking through this field, and he sees this big, huge puddle, you know, and he starts walking on the edge. And I'm talking with a friend of mine, and we're kind of watching this go down, and he, he's walking out to the middle of it, gets out to the the middle and all of a sudden goes crashing through this puddle that is I think like a foot deep and so his his shoes are you know his boots are this tall and the water's this tall and so he's all the way in and his boots are full of water and he's freaking out and so he grabs forward and he tries to pull his foot up and well now it's stuck down in the ice and so he lands chest deep in this ice and then goes through it now he's now he's chest deep in the water and it's like <gasps> you know that feeling of like the water's cold and he looks over at me and and I'm like I'm the closest adult to my little boy And all I can think is, that water must be cold. (laughs) I'm just like staring at my son. He's hypothermic. And I I just, I couldn't, I'm like, somebody's got to get him. I don't know. He's way out in the middle there. I got tennis shoes on. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. And then it was like, oh yeah, no, that's me. And so I step in and I soak my foot and I grab him out and I hold him close, you know, and he's crying and he's upset, you know, and everybody's looking at me like, you are a horrible dad. (laughs) And, oh, it's my life though. I just, that's just who I am, you know? And the thing is, you know what? That's every Christian you've ever met. Every Christian you have ever met, we are horrible saviors, Right? Amen. Amen to that. Christians are horrible saviors. And, and that's, that's just because we were never meant to be the savior. We were never meant to do that. I'm going to disappoint you every single time if I'm your savior. Every single time. Oh, God, save us all. Don't make me or any other pastor, any other Christian leader your savior. We were never meant to do that. We were meant to teach and there's a, there's a tension there because, you know, we also read in, in the scriptures, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul's a very influential leader in, in the church. And so there is something to be said about Christian leadership, that we should be examples to people, that we should try to be a good example of what Christ is. We're supposed to be the aroma of grace, an aroma of Christ to the world, which just is challenging, right? Like when you enter, enter the room where people are like, that smells like Jesus. I don't know. That's, that's kind of a weird illustration, but I don't know. That's, 
That's what I think about. And, and I think, man, I don't know if that's the case with me. But it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. Christians, you know what we are? We're like a compass. We're like a compass. And far too many Christians and far too many people think the Christians are true north. And we are not true north. We will never be true north. And what happens is people, what people start doing is they start following the ways of Christians. And although sometimes you can learn a lot from Christians, in the end, you better be following Jesus. In the end, I want you following a savior and not a system. Because the system will fail you. The people will fail you. Jesus never fails you. Amen? Amen. That's what we're all about. And that's what we're about as a church is pointing to true north. That's what we do. You might look in here, if you're a non-Christian, you might say, man, these people are messed up. Amen, we are. We are messed up. But here's what we do. We point to true north. I hope that everything we do points north. Every time we drop an egg out of a helicopter or change oil for a single mom, we are pointing to north. We're showing people, this is what, this is what Jesus does. He just shows up and he loves you. No strings attached. We don't expect anything from you. This is the love of God. Your friends at work, your co-workers, your employees, your employer, you show the love of Jesus to them. You point north. They're going to see your mistakes. And there's this lie that wells up within us that says, okay, if they see that I'm messed up, you know, don't let them see you sweat. Don't let them see your mistakes because then they're going to think something bad about God. I don't know. I kind of think a bigger, a better story of grace is somebody who's all screwed up and still knows forgiveness. Somebody who's all screwed up and still knows that God loves them. I think that's a better story than a bunch of Christians who try to act like they've got it together when they really don't. Because people smell that, right? They can, they, can, they can see right through that. And we want to be a church that's honest, but we want to be a church that's, that's also being a good example to our world. And so I feel like there's, there's like two sermons that I want to preach here when I, when I wrestle with this. I, I want to preach this thing to the believers. The world is watching you. The world is watching. They want to learn something about God so they look at the church. Feel that weight. Feel that weight. The world is watching. Consider that. To the non-believers, I feel like I just want to say church people are screwed up and distorted. We are distorted images of God. You know, we're like a mirror, like a really, have you seen an old mirror that's a little wavy? That's kind of like what we are. It's like when you look at the church, you, you kind of get a glimpse of what God is and who he is, but it's not quite right. And it won't ever be quite right. But our, our job is just to be as accurate representations of Jesus as possible to the world around us. And this is, this is a beautiful way of living. It's a beautiful way of living. It's pushing all of the law, all of these, these rules and regulations to the side and following Christ. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to start to live different. You're going to start to, you're going to start to live differently when you, when you truly know this. There's this transition that happens where you stop going to Dr. Phil. You stop trying to figure your life out and fix it. You start following in the ways of Jesus, knowing his grace. And you know what? Your life gets transformed. And there are people that, that are afraid of talking about grace. They're afraid of preaching grace because they're afraid that people are going to walk all over grace. But I believe that grace is the greatest motivator. I believe grace is the only lasting change that will happen in our lives. And when you get this, when you truly get this, it's like a whole new world is opened up. It's like everything is different. You'll look at your family differently. You'll look at your, your, your work differently. You'll look at your kids differently, your job, your parents, that thing that was done to you years ago, that stuff that you continue to do wrong. It's all seen differently through the lens of Jesus. And in this passage in Hebrews, he's saying, don't go back. Why would you ever go back 
when Jesus has done so much for you. I want you guys to watch this clip. I didn't really know there was such a thing as colorblindness at the time. I think I was six or seven. I thought maybe I wasn't intelligent enough to tell because I didn't know and I didn't tell my parents. So I just, I stopped painting and drawing. There's some drawings where I wish I could see how my kids put the colors together and what they were visualizing. It's not that I can't name them. There's, there's nothing there. That's gray and that's gray and that's gray. I had moments where girls would make fun of me for not knowing girly shades, and I felt self-conscious about it. Sometimes I feel like there is a world of color that I'm just sort of missing out on. Color blindness is a situation where because your eyes are different than someone else's eyes, you don't see the world the same way. Commonly, red and green don't look different, but look the same. So if there's a kind of a color filter, kind of glasses that would separate colors, they suddenly can see red and green. There's nothing wrong with the wiring. The problem exists in the eye with the photopigments. So Valspar is working with us at Enchroma to bring color to everyone. We developed these glasses to enable colorblind people to see color for the first time in their lives. like this whole end of the of the spectrum that I just was completely not aware of. I'm like getting misty. This is this is amazing. I've never been able to see this one. And I just want to cry a little bit. <laughs> um I never realized like how much I was affected by the fact that I can't see the world like the way that other people see the world. When he's drawing, I see him going in and out of his crayon box like 150 times sometimes. Oh wow, that's cool. And now I kind of know why. There's a lot more colors here. All these things that are intentional in life, I never caught on to it. In the end, the experience of color is so private that you don't really know how to explain that. So is that what you guys see every day? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, just everything's flatter. Everything's, yeah, kind of, yeah. I don't want to take them off. Um... It's just dull. It's a little dull, to be honest. I never really thought about my colorblindness that much. It was just something that I had that I dealt with and that wasn't really a big deal to me. But color is an amazing experience that I think people probably take for granted. an awesome illustration, isn't it, of what it looks like to experience Jesus. And I just, I saw that video and I thought, this is, this is it. 
This is the difference between somebody who's experienced the grace of Christ and somebody who hasn't. And, and some of you, you've, you've seen believers who seem to have a spark within them. They seem to have something that is driving them that, that you don't have. And, and so, so you, you turn to all of this behavior. You turn to all of these things. Maybe if I just do this more, maybe if I just do that more, I can get it. I can figure it out. No, I can fix myself. And then there's this moment that you catch Jesus and you, you, you see him for who he is. You see the finished work of Christ on the cross, that you have nothing to contribute to that. And then when you experience that, it's like you can see color for the first time. And, and everything changed. I don't know if, if you've been a believer for a lot of years, I want you to think back to that moment when you, when you felt that. That moment when you, when you saw Christ for who he was. You saw your sin and your weakness for what it was, but you saw grace. And it was interesting as I watched that video, the girl, she goes, she goes, yeah, I don't want to take them off. It's just kind of dull without them on. And I just, I think, why would we ever go back? Why would we ever go back to just trusting in our ability to fix ourselves and to get better? There's this C.S. Lewis quote I found. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Christianity can be that real. Christ can be that tangible in your life. And he becomes the lens by which you see everything else in the world. And if your world looks a little black and white, if, if over time you've seen, yeah, Brian, I just don't really believe that I love Jesus anymore. I don't believe that there's, there's a passion for him anymore. Doing more stuff for him will not change it. Doing more work will not change it. I've got a few things that I, I feel like are essential in the, rhythm, in the rhythm of the life of a believer that can help with this. And the first one is this, recall your depravity. I think we all need a rhythm of recalling our depravity, of looking at our lives for what it is, and looking inside of ourselves and considering who we are without God. And for some of you, that's really easy, because that was like two weeks ago. And maybe you've been saved recently, and you're like, yeah, that's, I can see that. I can see who I am without God. It's right in front of my face. And, uh, and I'm hoping that he comes through. I'm hoping that he does some stuff. And, and others of you, maybe you've got this story of uh, being a Christian your entire life. And you can't really think of a day that you didn't know something about church or something about God. And, and let, me, let me give you a tip. Just look at who you are when you lose restraint. Look at who you are when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Look at who you are when your wife or husband says something disrespectful to you. Look at who you are when a friend doesn't call you on a Friday night or when you feel mistreated. And look at your tendency there. Look at the worst moment of your life. That's who you are without Jesus. And if you can't think back to before, you can look. And I, I see this because I grew up in the church. I grew up in the church. And I see the tendencies and I see these moments in my life where I just, I kind of let go of my, my new life. And I, I just, I reach back to these behaviors and it's like, okay, this is who I would be all the time without the grace of Christ on my life. And that's a powerful thing to consider. Number two is this, respond to Jesus. Respond to Jesus. Which is different than just imitating Jesus. Truly respond to him. 
That means you have to actually learn about him. You have to spend time with him. You have to be in a, in a back and forth relationship with him. Sunday's not enough, church. Sunday is not enough. You have to, you have to live a life with Jesus. And when you do, you can respond to him all the week long. And there are people, they, they imitate Jesus. But, but you know what? That doesn't last. That doesn't, I heard a, heard a pastor say, if, if your Monday doesn't change, your Sunday don't count. I think that's true. I think if, if it doesn't change your life, if your life isn't slowly changing by the grace of Jesus, what, what are you doing? What are you wasting your time with? Respond to the grace of Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a royal priesthood. That your, your identity has literally been changed. That Christ comes in and he doesn't just rework your life. He doesn't reframe things. He explodes it. Like I talked a few weeks ago, he comes in like an explosion and destroys everything so that he might rebuild it into something beautiful. That's what Christ does for you. So we want to learn. And this, I get it. Sometimes we don't feel like doing the right thing. Do it anyway. I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative about discipline. We need disciplines in our lives, but we do it. We do it because we love Jesus. We do it because he's changed us. And over time as we do it, you know what? It starts to get into our hearts. Number three is this. Remember your first love. I want you to think back. I want you to think back to the first time maybe you had a crush on somebody. The first time back in school you were writing little notes and folding them up into little footballs, you know. Flicking them across the room. Leaving, leaving notes on the girl or the guy's desk. I want you to think back to that feeling of, of passion and love. And consider what it's like with Jesus. If you're a believer today... I want you to think back to what it was like, to that moment where you tasted grace. Like the people as they walked through that room, like, wow, that's amazing. I want you to consider that day. And you know, you can live like that. You really can. You really can live like that. Your relationship with God can be that intimate. It can be that passionate. You can know that grace every single day. Day And with these things, I think these things are just part of a rhythm of the life of somebody who wants to know the grace of Jesus. Somebody who doesn't want to follow a system, but wants to follow the Savior himself. I'm going to beat this into the ground. The law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. Whether you grabbed one piece of it and you said, well, Brian, I, you know, one, one little piece of legalistic behavior, you prayed the prayer that one time, you did the right thing, you go to church. I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe you do a lot of things. You're like, Brian, look at my resume. I'm pretty awesome. I don't know what it is, but the law made nothing perfect. Only Jesus. And when you get this, you're going to see everything differently. It's like It's like color for the first time. And I want this for all of you today. I don't want anybody to leave here seeing in black and white. I want you to know color and passion for the first time today if if you haven't lived that way. And so let's pray together. And if you haven't received Jesus, if you haven't been seeing in color, I just want you to pray this with me now. Jesus, I need your grace. And I've tried to fix myself too many times. And I know that my works and my deeds are not enough. And today, God, I want to stop trying to fix myself and allow you to come in, God, and to change me from the inside out, God. So, Father, I just give my life to you. I trust that you will do the work. God, I trust that you will give me the strength that I need. 
And Father, I will trust you when I fail and I will trust you when I succeed. And God, I pray for the entire church this week, God, as we go into Monday, that you would change us, God, that we would be affected by interacting with you this morning. God, that we wouldn't go back to old ways, old religious behaviors, but we would trust, God, that you love us and you saved us. God, even when we mess it up, even in those moments that we know we, we look nothing like you, God, that we trust that you have, you have finished the work. On the cross, that's exactly what you said. It is finished. So, Father, could we just rest in that peace as a community today? We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. If you receive Jesus today, I just want you to grab one of the cards in the seat in front of you and just, just check the box that says, I commit my life to Christ so that we can be praying for you. And let's worship today as a church. Love you guys. Thanks.